As you've just heard, my wife and I recently got a baby. Her name is Eden. She's super sweet. And watching her is sometimes quite amusing and funny. She gets fed easily eight times a day. We have never forgotten her. She never went to bed without her milk. She never starved. And yet, every day and several times a day, she goes nuts and freaks out when she's hungry. She cries as if she is dying. And watching her in the stroller, so desperately crying, always makes me smile and think, come down, baby. You should know that we care for you. You should know that we have never forsaken you. As always, so even now, you will get your milk. Just relax. And then a few days ago, I realized how much I resemble my daughter and how I'm even worse. She is too little to understand our care for her. She just starts crying when she gets hungry. But I am grown up. And my behavior, my attitude is often so immature and similar towards God. He has always, every single moment of my life, cared for me much better than we do care for Eden. And still I doubt his goodness, question his, his ways, and complain about his plan again and again. Brothers and sisters, our God knows what he is doing. And what he is doing is always good. He reigns with steadfast love, and because of that we have hope. God reigns with steadfast love, and that is our hope. This is our main point today. And to see how God reigns with steadfast love, we will turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 33, and see how this topic and this theme of God's steadfast love and his reign gets developed throughout the psalm. But first, a little bit of context. I don't know about you, but when I got the task to preach a psalm, I thought, like, oh, no. They all sound so similar. And I really struggled to prepare the sermon, to be honest. But taking a closer look and really getting into the text, I realized that I was, I was wrong. There is such a big variety and difference in this book of Psalms. And yes, on the other side, they all have one thing in common. They are all about God. Psalms are songs about God. And so the sermon today is not about us, it's not about you or about me, it is about God. And so in this psalm we will see God. God who reigns with steadfast love so that we have hope. We don't know the author of this psalm particularly, but it was definitely Jew many years ago. And Psalm 33, there are different genres of songs in the psalms. 33 is a, uh, is a song um, gener- or called the general hymn, which means a song that gives reasons why we should praise God. And hymns were usually sang um, of worship on diverse occasions, at festivals, sometimes by a choir, sometimes by uh, individuals. And so as we're going to read the psalm now, just have in mind that this psalm is an actual song sang by real people to a real God at a real time. Like we are singing songs today to praise God, psalms were written by men to praise God. Just with one big difference, the author behind the songs of psalms was not Matt Redman or the Gettys, it was God himself. And we will take a closer look of this psalm by walking through it in five steps. 
Let me give you five points for this morning. Our first point is a God to praise, verse 1 to 3. A God to praise, verse 1 to 3. Our second point is a God who speaks, verse 4 to 9. A God who speaks. Our third point, a God who reigns, verse 10 to 12. A God who reigns. Point four, a God who sees, verse 13 to 19. A God who sees. And then at last, a God to trust, verse 20 to 22. A God to trust. And as you might have realized, our first and last point mentioned things that we should do. We should praise God and trust God. And in between, in point two, three, and four, we will see three reasons why we should praise and trust God. We should praise and trust God because he speaks, reigns, and sees. So let's start with point one, a God who sees. No, a God to praise, sorry. A God who prays, verse one to three. Please open your, Bible, open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles on the table back in the hall. Uh, the book of Psalms is pretty much in the middle of the Bible. And let's read Psalm 33, verse 1 to 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So the psalmist begins his song with a call to praise God. Each verse begins with an appeal. Verse 1, shout for joy. Verse 2, give thanks. And verse 3, sing a new song. And then the psalmist gives further instructions and ways of how to praise God. He mentions different instruments, lyres, harps, and strings. And he makes clear that people should use these instruments to the best of their ability. They should play skillfully. And reading that, we have to have in mind when the psalm was written. It was written at a time when there was a huge division, an ethical division between the people of God, Israel, and all the other nations. There was a huge gap between Israel and all the other nations. And so the question is, who is the psalmist calling to praise God in verse 1. Is this introduction of the hymn a call to every human being and all people to praise God? Apparently not if we look into verse 1. And there it states, shout for, the Lord, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So who should praise God? The righteous and the upright. But who are these? We can read in verse 4, that the word of God is upright. So the righteous are in some ways related to the word of God. And to give a short definition, because we'll talk about that later, the righteous and the upright are those people who fear the Lord and to hope in him, as verse 18 makes clear later. So the righteous people are those who fear the Lord and hope in him. And so the psalmist goes on, and in verse 3, we read a call to sing a new song. And a new song most likely didn't mean to sing a new song, to write a new hymn. It probably meant to renew your heart and mind and thoughts about God. Or as someone has said, I think very helpfully, a new song is a fresh response of praise and thanks, one that matches the freshness of God's goodness and mercy 
which are new every morning. So the call to sing a new song is the call again and again to reflect and rejoice about God's goodness and steadfast love in prayers, songs, and thoughts. So the whole point of these first three verses is to call and praise God for who he is because he is a God to be praised. How do you praise God? Do you praise God? Maybe you think you can't praise God just because you don't play an instrument. But you know what? There's one instrument that each of us can play. It's a string instrument, and it's called voice. The strings are deep down in, the, in your throat. They're called vocal cords. And as far as I know, there are no dumb people in our church. And so if God has given you a voice, you can play an instrument. Sing. Sing good biblical songs at home with your family, maybe as part of your daily family devotion. Sing good friends when you meet your friends. Sing good songs when you meet your friends. Join us and sing with the whole church as we meet every Sunday morning to praise God. And when you sing, sing loud. Sing sincerely and deliberately. And pay attention to the text. It's easy to just sing the song without realizing what we sing. Pay attention to what you sing. Maybe most of you haven't heard about that, but once in a week, all the interns and staff meet together to pick up songs for the next service. And the parsons, I can tell, are very careful in which songs they choose because they wanted the church to sing good and sound and biblical songs. A mix of new modern songs and old hymns, but all kinds of th- songs that reflect God's goodness and truth about God. Because songs are a great way to praise God. But how should we praise God? The next verses give us three reasons. So let's see the first reason why we should praise God in the next verses. And that's our second point. We should praise God because he is a God who speaks. Verse 4 to 9. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So after, the, after calling the people in verse 1 to 3 to praise God, we now see the first reason. We should praise God because he's a God who speaks. And where do we see the fact that God speaks in verse 4 to 9? Verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So we can clearly see the theme of God's word, God speaking and God commanding in these verses. And the word of the Lord, as the psalmist uses it, can on one side mean God directly speaking to someone as he spoke to Abraham and other people in the Old Testament, but it also means God speaking through written words that he has told some people to write down. When this psalm was written, the first, book of our, the first books of our Bible, the first five books of Moses, 
did already exist. So when the psalmist says that the word of God is upright, he was also talking about this book. This book is the word of God. This is what God has said. And so when verse 4 says that God's word is upright, it means that what God has said here in this book is straight. It is true. It is unchangeably and trustworthy. And not only what he says, but also what he does, as the second half of verse 4 shows. All his work is done in faithfulness. And following the next verses, we see more clearly that God's work on one side and his word on the other side are inseparable. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke and came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So what is the psalmist talking about here? What did God do with his words? And you probably have already realized. It's clearly an allusion to Genesis 1 to 2, to the creation of the world. Because in Genesis 1 it states, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So creating the world, God only used words. He spoke and it came to be, as verse 9 states. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Can you imagine the whole universe, all the stars, all the moons and galaxies, but also tiny cells, atoms and molecules were made by God's word. His words have creating power. And so after showing in verse 6 how God has created the heaven above the universe, he shows in verse 7 that God has also created and rules over the earth. He speaks about the sea. And the psalmist uses strong imagery in verse 7, trying to find good words to describe how powerful, mighty, and superior God is. But now think for a moment. Just the fact itself that God's word has so much power can be very scary and worrying. Power itself is not necessarily good. We just have to look to Russia and other countries. Their leaders have a lot of power, but they use it for evil in an unjust and bad way. Power in the hand of bad people or in the hand of wrong people can be horrible. But in verse 5, before showing the power of God, his word, and his reign, the psalmist states clearly that God is good. He says, he, and he means God, loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. What a great relief. The God who speaks with power and the God who reigns and whose words have unlimited power is a good, righteous, and just God. He reigns, as we read, with steadfast love, even as we have read together in the scripture reading before, and not with anger or wickedness. So after seeing this great God and admiring his word, what is an appropriate reaction and response? I think verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The only right response 
to a God who speaks like our God does is fear and standing in awe of this Lord. Do you fear God? Do you honor and respect him? Do your words, your prayer, behavior, and thoughts reflect fear of God? Do you approach him in a casual, cool way or in a humble and reverent way? Do you have big thoughts about God or small thoughts? Are you amazed and astonished by his power or did you get used to it? If you have ever visited our church website, you will see with big letters on our homepage, Bible-based, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, rugged evangelical. I love it. But why do we highlight that? Why is it so important for us as a church to be Bible-based? Isn't that a little bit old school? Well, we think it's important to be Bible-based because we believe that God's written word, this word, still has the same power as his words had in the creation of the world. We believe that God still speaks and that he has a lot to say. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, my time and our time in this church has helped me a lot to love and appreciate God's word more because of you all. Seeing you loving God's word studying God's word with your friends and families and church members, seeing how you share God's word with your colleagues and non-believing friends has encouraged and challenged me to love God's word more. Thank you for this example that you've been to me. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're maybe discouraged because it seems that the word of God has no power, it seems that the word of God that you share with your family members or with your friends has no power because nothing happens, Maybe you especially want to reach the Emirati people in this country and you start doubting if that could ever happen because you don't see any one of them coming to faith. Be encouraged. God's word still has the same power. The words of this book can do what you and I cannot do. They can bring life. This is the mean by that God rules and reigns this world. And this is our third point, a God who reigns. So we have seen we should praise God because he speaks, and now we will see that we should praise God because he's a God who reigns. Verse 10 to 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. First of all, more than 10 times the word Lord appears in this psalm. And the original Hebrew word used here is the word Yahweh, one of the titles of God in the Bible, which refers to him as the one who is. And that alone, just God's title alone, indicates that God is a God who reigns. Because a God who doesn't need to explain who he is but who just is who he is, as Exodus 3.14 says, is a God who reigns with superior, superior power and authority. God is just the God who he is. And then we get a closer description of how God reigns. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. 
So now the second point, we have seen how God has created everything by his word and mouth. And here in this point, we will see how he still rules and reigns over all the things he has made. Not just the world, but also the people on this world. We don't have much background of this psalm, as we sometimes have. But as it often was the case, it could be that this psalm was written when the nation of Israel was threatened by other pagan nations. However, the author of the psalm definitely knew that the counsel of the Lord and the plans of his peoples, of the peoples, mean nothing to God. Because he knew God is a God who reigns. The psalmist has very likely heard about the glorious exodus from Egypt. He has very likely heard about the attempt of Canaanite nations to destroy Israel and to frustrate and just finish them. He has seen and heard of many cases and stories where God has frustrated the plans of the pagan nations and showed his reign. But God was and is, but God was and is not arbitrary in his plans. He doesn't act spontaneously or randomly. Rather, the next verse makes clear the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And here we see the clear contrast between the people of the world on one side and the God of the world on the other side. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, verse 10, but his counsel on the other side stands forever, verse 11. Which means that his counsel, God's plan, has no end and cannot and will not be changed. God is not like us that he might change or delay or quit his plans. He is not left to the external conditions of life as we are. He will not be influenced by other people, rulers, powers, or opinions. No, his counsel stands forever. The plan of his heart, the ideas and thoughts that he has, stand and will stand forever. And the big question that comes up immediately is, What then is his plan? What is his counsel? And verse 12 gives us little insight into God's heart and plan and what he wants. Let's read verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So what is God's plan? And how does he show his reign in the world? Verse 12. By choosing a people as his heritage. His plan is... To choose a people. Sounds great, but what does that mean? Who is the chosen people and who is the nation whose God is the Lord? When the psalm was written, it was quite obvious and clear. I have mentioned that already. The chosen nation was Israel. The chosen people of God was the nation, the ethical nation of Israel. The offsprings of Jacob whose story Josh is preaching through since a few months. God has chosen Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. He has made a covenant with him. He has promised him a land, a great nation, and he also has promised to bless all the nations through him. And then in the years after that, as we see, every single word of God's promise got fulfilled. Abraham's family became a big, big, uh, big nation. God did make a covenant with them. And he made very clear to all the other surrounding nations 
that Israel and not they are his nations. He loved Israel. He cared for them. And he chose them as his people and not the other pagan nations. And that is why the psalmist can say in verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. He has seen and he has experienced he was part of this blessing. He knew how it feels to be part of God's nation. But there's more in this verse. And actually, we don't know how aware the psalmist was of that. But ultimately, God would use his chosen nation, Israel, to bring about salvation, not just for them, but for the whole world, for all the other nations as well. Through the physical line of Israel, the long-promised Savior, Jesus Christ, would one day come to live and die and raise again and save people from all kinds of different nations. And through him, through Jesus, God would establish a nation marked by grace and not by race. A nation made up with people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. As 1 Peter 2, 9 makes very clear, but you, and Peter speaks about the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So the people whom God has chosen in verse 12 were at first the people of Israel, but ultimately all people and only those people from all nations who trust in God. God chose Christ and in him a nation, the church. We are sitting here this morning, part of God's nation. But maybe not all of us. Do you belong to God's nation? Are you part of his chosen nation, the church? And if you don't know, and you don't know how to become part of his nation, we will see later in a while what that means. God reigns. His counsel stands forever, and he frustrated the plans of the people. And yet, even though God reigns, we live in a fallen world and shouldn't be surprised by all the sin, injustice, and horrors that we see every day. We should give in to think that someone else reigns, as it sometimes seems. God reigns, and the evil one, and all the evil in the world, will not have the last word. Some of you are from countries that are in war right now, or that are in an economical disaster. Some of you are from countries where Christians are persecuted. And maybe you're sitting here worried and anxious about your family, about their future, and about your future. And that is very understandable. But let this psalm encourage you. Trust God in the midst of all the suffering because he reigns. It may seem that everything is out of control, but actually it's not. God reigns, so trust him. We have seen that our God is a God to be praised in point one. We have seen that we should praise him because he's a God who speaks, point two. And now we have seen that he also should be praised because he's a God who reigns. And now we'll see a last reason, point four, a God who sees. We should praise God because he's a God who sees. Verse 13 to 19. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. 
The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Verse 13 starts with an imagery that God, that describes God looking down from heaven. A term that illustrates that God sits, reigns, and rules over everything and therefore sees and observes everything. Everything that's going on on earth. He sees all men and all inhabitants of the earth. And he doesn't just see them. Verse 15 makes clear that he has fashioned their heart. These people only exist because of God. He has created them as humans. They have feelings, thoughts, consciousness, and desires because of him. And since God is the one who has fashioned their heart, he of course also observes all their deeds. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And just take a moment and think about that. The God who rules and sees and speaks knows all your thoughts and sees all your deeds. The God who rules and speaks and sees, he sees all your thoughts and all your deeds. He has eyes like flames of fire, as Revelation describes it. And if these thoughts make you get in goosebumps, that's okay. We should stand in awe and fear and trembling before this God. Because he's much greater and much mightier and holier than we think. What does he see when he sees you? What kind of thoughts, desires, secret wishes and motives does he see? After making very clear that God sees everything on earth, the psalmist is doing a comparison in verse 16 and 17 and verse 18 and 19 and mentions two kinds of people that God sees, very briefly. On one side, he sees those who trust man, verse 16 and 17, And on the other side, he sees those who trust in God, verse 18 and 19. Those who trust man, verse 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation by his great might it cannot rescue. So the psalmist here uses a very common example of showing false hope. War and military conflicts were daily life back in these days. And the psalmist makes clear that it is not an army, great strength, Or we could say tanks and missiles that bring salvation and rescue. The psalmist knew from his own history, the history of Israel, that these things are not the mean to win a war. He knew from the book of the law how the nations felt and lost so many battles against Israel, even though they had much bigger armies, much stronger horses, and much better soldiers. I mean, just think about the story of Gideon. He defeated 135,000 Midianites with an army of 300. Can you imagine? This is more than 10,000 times more. He defeated them, and clearly the power and chariots of the Midianites could not help them because it was a false hope. These things were deceitful and brought false hope. People relied on them, but they failed. And trusting man and human power will always lead to failure and loss. Trusting Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed 
and the strong advanced military of the UAE cannot and will not ultimately save and rescue us. Because our problem and our threat is much deeper and much bigger than we think, and because true salvation and rescue comes from somewhere else. And so the psalmist shows in verse 18 to 19 another group of people, those people who don't trust in themselves and in their power, but those who trust in God. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. God sees and has his eyes on those who fear him. And it says in this verse, the eye of the Lord, a very common term in the Old and New Testament. But what does it mean? What is the eye of the Lord? Does God have actual eyes as we have? Or are his eyes like Zaron's eye in the Lord of the Rings? Of course not. The eye of the Lord is a repeated term in the Old and New Testament, and it's a picture, a human-like quality, used to describe God's omniscience. God's omniscience means his attribute to know and see everything. So if the eye of the Lord is on something, it means God sees and knows these things or people. His eye, his oversight and care is on those, verse 18, who fear him or who hope in his steadfast love. Verse 18 is a parallelism, and to fear God and to hope in God means the same. Fearing God means hoping in God. And verse 19 shows what exactly that means. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So God sees everything. He sees people who trust themselves and trust their power, verse 16 and 17. And he sees people who fear and trust him, verse 18 and 19. And seeing the letter, the ones who trust in him, means more than just seeing. God seeing leads to God saving. As we have read, he saves them from death and famine. He delivers them. He redeems them. So when God sees, it means that God acts. I have mentioned earlier that our problem is much bigger and much deeper than we think. What I meant is that our actual problem is not mainly war. It's not famine or sickness. But first and foremost, our problem is God himself. We all have sinned against him, worshipped ourselves instead of him, and therefore are under his wrath. Brothers and sisters, our problem is God. And dear visitor, God sees you. He sees your imperfectness. He sees your sin, and he can't stand it. In your natural condition, you couldn't even survive for a second in his presence because he would need to punish and condemn you because of your sins. And God knew that. He saw this hopeless situation, and he acted. He acted by giving his son, Jesus Christ, to save people and to give these people everything and exactly what they needed. God fashioned their hearts and therefore knew what they needed. He knew they needed Jesus 
as the only one who can reconcile them with God. So friend, if you're not a Christian yet, and you maybe get even scared of all these thoughts and things that I said, there is hope. Cling to Jesus. Seek Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Ask God to show you Jesus. That is fearing God, accepting his rule and trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, the fact that God sees you and gave Jesus for you should lead to contentment, no matter what your struggle is. Maybe you see all your friends getting into relationships and you're still single. Maybe you're not single, you're married and you have a family, but you're childless and you want to have child, children. Maybe you have kids, but they're very disobedient and disrespectful. Maybe you're concerned about your work because you only earn little money. Maybe you have even lost your job. Maybe you have health issues. The list is endless. But no, God sees you. You may be forgotten and forsaken by people, but not by God. He sees you and he wants to give you what you really need. Jesus, himself. Earlier we have sung about Jesus in the song Loving Kindness. Alive laid down to rescue us with arms outstretched upon the cross. The greatest gift there ever was of loving kindness. In Jesus, God has given everything. The greatest gift that was ever given. And that leads us to our last, very short point, a God to trust. Because we have a God who speaks, who reigns and who sees, we should trust this God. Verse 20 to 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. After the psalmist spent the whole psalm to describe how God is, to show his reign that's visible in his speaking and seeing, he concludes the psalm with, with this beautiful doxology. And he uses three verbs again. Wait, verse 20, trust, verse 21, and hope, verse 22. And they all, wait, trust, and hope, describe one theme. Trusting and believing the God of Psalm 33. Trusting and believing the God that we have just seen. Since God's reign over all the world with steadfast love, he is our trustworthy shield and help. He is able to save and protect us. But from what? Does it mean that if we are a Christian, we will never suffer, never get sick, and never see danger, as some so-called preachers say? Apparently not. Some of us are sick, some lost their jobs, and some's life is in danger. As I have said earlier, God wants to mainly save you from himself. He can, of course, save and protect you from all the other things, from sickness, and poverty, but he has never promised that he will. But he does know your real problem. 
He knows what you really need. Those of you who know me know that I love donuts. I could eat donuts the whole day, every day. And actually, when I was writing and preparing the sermon, I sat in Alhamdulillah, and I was starving. I was so hungry. But instead of taking a proper meal, because that's what I needed, I went to Krispy Kreme and bought a donut. I thought I needed a donut because I love donuts. But actually, I didn't need a donut. I needed a proper, healthy meal. Brothers and sisters, God does not give us the donut that we want. He gives us the solid meal that we need. He doesn't give us the donut, wealth and money and all things that we think we need. He gives us the meal that we need, Jesus himself. So trust him that this is enough. See the bigger picture of this psalm. If you fear and trust God, you belong to God's new people, and you are under God's care and love. You are united to his son, Jesus Christ. Is that not enough? It is. We don't need anything else. Knowing him and trusting him wholeheartedly, therefore, will lead to gladness. Verse 21. We have so many reasons to rejoice and to be glad. To wake up with a smile on our face and to go to bed with a smile on our face. Not because life is not hard. Life is hard. And I don't want to play down the circumstances of, um, in those of, in, that we are. They are hard and challenging. But we have Jesus and with him everything we need. God reigns the whole world with loving kindness and steadfast love. Not with anger, but with patience. He withholds his judgment so that more people will get saved. And so the psalmist closes, let your steadfast love be on us. This is our hope, God's steadfast love, his covenant loving kindness for us. So don't seek security, help, and joy anywhere else than in Jesus. Not in alcohol, not in social media, not in your job, not in buying a nice house, not in education, insurances, and doctors. Wait for the Lord and hope in him. In the beginning, I've mentioned how Eden always forgets our care and our steadfast love for her. If you, like I, also tend to forget and overlook God's love, God's steadfast love and care and reign over your life, I hope that this sermon helped you to trust and hope in God again and to praise him for who and how he is. He reigns with steadfast love, and therefore we have hope.